Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing good this morning. And once again, if you're our guest or if you're watching this later this week online for the first time, thank you so much for joining with us. We are excited that you're here. And we're kicking off a brand new series this morning called Respond. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at some of the teachings of Jesus and then looking at how do we respond. This isn't just about information, it's about transformation. So God, what are you wanting to do in our lives? How are you wanting to change us and develop us? And so this will be the focus for the next four weeks. And I'm so excited as we get ready to jump into this series because this is something God's been speaking to me about for the past few months. And I've been wrestling through this. I've been studying this. I'm doing a lot of research on the topics that we're going to be looking at. And so I'm excited to get to share with you what God's been challenging my heart and my life with and what God wants to do in our church. And so all of that to say simply this, come expecting every week. Don't miss any of these next four weeks, but come with your heart open, come ready to listen, come ready to hear God's word. And let's look at how our lives should respond to what it is that Jesus is saying. And so we're going to jump right into this this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 4 in verse 18. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you, and it's on page 472 of that blue Bible there in front of you. Take that out or take out your smartphone and just Google Matthew 4. You will get there. And once you have that, hold on to that for just a second. And what Matthew is doing is Matthew is writing a story of the life of Jesus. He's going to start at his birth and go through his life and what's known as his public ministry and then on to his death and resurrection. He's going to give us a pretty full picture of the life of Jesus. But this week, as I was listening to a message on discipleship, a pastor shared this and I thought it was so amazing. I want to share it with you. He said, Matthew starts by giving us a picture of who he's writing about. And if you've ever read the first few verses of Matthew, you may have not thought much about them, but there's actually this amazing depth and beautiful picture. And Matthew chapter one, verse one says this, if you can see it there, you can look at this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you and I, we read through that first chapter and it's so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and you're trying to just get to the cool part, right? Where Jesus is born, because that's what I do. But Matthew stops and he says, wait, I want to introduce you. And there's four pictures he gives of Jesus right here at the start. And the first is Jesus. Now we read over that and you and I, we have stuff in our mind because of vacation Bible school and Sunday school and growing up in church or just hearing other people say stuff. But everyone would have paused and said, wait a minute. I know he's talking about. Jesus means savior of his people. Matthew said, first, you need to know this is the person that's going to answer the issue of sin. Everything that I'm about to tell you, the story that's about to unfold, you need to know this is the person that's going to save you. All the way back from the beginning chapters of Genesis, this is the answer to the issue and the problem of mankind. The Savior of the world has arrived on the scene now. Do you understand who I'm talking about? That's what Matthew's writing. And then he goes on, this is Jesus Christ. Now, that wasn't his last name, okay? That wasn't on his driver's license. That's not what that is. This is the title that's given. And not only is he the Savior, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's saying, people of Israel, people of God, this is who you've been waiting for for hundreds of years. This is the Redeemer. Not only is he going to save you, he's going to restore everything that God wants to bring his people back to. This is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been longing for. Open up your eyes, open up your ears, listen to this because not only is he the savior, but this is the redeemer that has come to restore us back 
into right relationship with God. And then he goes on, the son of David. Now, even if you've not been around church a lot, that name may sound familiar because this is the guy that killed Goliath. And then he became king over Israel. And David was known as one of the major kings, one of the main kings. This was a righteous guy, a man after God's own heart, a a worshiper, a warrior, a poet. And he's saying this, who I'm about to tell you about, this is the king. This is what it means. He has the right to tell you what to do in your life. You're not in control. He is. So Matthew's saying, everything I'm about to tell you, you need to listen up and follow this because this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he is sovereign over our lives. And so we need to pay attention to what he's going to say. The last thing, this is the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. He's saying, this is a God of relationship. This is a family business. This is a family matter. What I'm getting ready to share with you, this is a savior, a redeemer, a king who wants to be close to you, who wants to be near to you. He's part of the family. He's part of the people of God. Matthew begins with this beautiful picture. This is who I'm about to tell you about, so you need to pay attention to what I'm going to say. And then he begins to tell us once again about the birth. And then as Jesus grows older, and he's about to enter into what's known as public ministry, He's probably around 30 years old, maybe a a few years older there at the time that we pick up this story. And so this is where Matthew starts in Matthew 4, 18. It says this, this is about Jesus. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. That's important to note. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. And going on there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in the boat of Zebedee with their father, and they were mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, Jesus looks at these group of men, these four Young guys, they were probably teenagers at this age in their life. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So Jesus gives this first kind of command, this first calling, some of the first words that he speaks to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I just want to say on the last part of this phrase, we're going to talk about this next week, but it came with an expectation. This first thing that Jesus says to them, he lets them know right off the bat, this is going to lead to a purpose. It's going to lead to your destiny. What I'm asking you to do, what I'm inviting you into, it's ultimately going to go somewhere. But that first kind of command, that first calling, follow me. And I want to preach today's entire message off of those two words. So if you have your Bibles, you can highlight that, underline those, because that's where we're going to stay today. Follow me, these two words. Now, I want you to just think about what's going on. We read these stories. We kind of know the ending. We know how they're going to play out. And so we miss the impact of what's going on here. If you're reading this for the first time, this seems very strange. You got guys, okay, these young teenage men that are working in their father's business. They're fishing. They're mending nets. They're doing this, their livelihood. And Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And all of a sudden they leave. I don't know if you guys know Eddie. Eddie's an amazing guy here. He's a business owner, runs Extreme Air, okay? If you were watching Eddie's life, and one day you saw me walk into his business, and I said, Eddie, follow me. And all of a sudden, he took out the business keys, threw them to the employees, took out the checkbook, the credit card, handed over the title and said, here you guys go, I'm leaving. You would think we're missing something, right? 
Like something else is going on here. What's taking place? Why did he just do all of that? Because someone told him two words, follow me. That seems a little strange, right? And that's what's going on. We do so many times we miss things because this was a cultural statement that he's making. This is something that would have been familiar to everyone at the time there. This is an invitation into discipleship. These aren't random words, follow me. This was a calling that a spiritual leader, what was known as a rabbi during that time, a teacher would give whenever disciples, he was calling disciples or disciples were coming to him. These two words, follow me, was an invitation into discipleship. He was saying, I want you to be near me. We're gonna look at this today. I want you to be close to me. And so they were saying, okay, I'll I'll leave and I'll go do that. And we're gonna discover why they would do that. Why would they make that kind of statement of faith? What would that look like inside of their lives? This discipleship that he's calling them to, it's an invitation into community. And I want you to see this. I think we have a slide here, and here's what's going on. These are the three cities. This is the area that Jesus is in, um, Bethsaida, Chorazon, and Capernaum. This is the area that he's calling these men from. As we see this, and they're in the area of Bethsaida there. This is a close-knit community. It's only about six or 800 people there at that time. They would have known each other. They would have been familiar with Jesus and they would have understood because this is what's known as the triangle. These were people that loved God, that were passionate about obeying his word, were passionate about going to synagogue or the temple or the church of that time. They were passionate about following the words of God and the commands of God. So for a spiritual teacher to come up to them and say, follow me, they knew what that meant. They knew, hey, we're gonna give our lives to studying God's word, to learning about God, and it would have been an invitation. And the first thing that he's inviting them into is community. This is an invitation. Discipleship is an invitation into community. Here's what they would have known. He's not just calling us. This isn't Jesus just asking us for. Whenever a rabbi or spiritual leader would call people, there was always a group. And for a certain amount of time, it wasn't set or it wasn't always defined, but you were gonna follow that spiritual leader. You were gonna follow that rabbi. This is an invitation in community. We're not gonna do this alone. A rabbi would never just call one person. He would call a group of them. And imagine this, knowing that whenever you responded, follow me, and you responded to that, you were committing to spend your life with a group of people. And not just that, teenagers, okay? Some of you know what that means. You've raised some teenagers, right? So the difficulty, the friction, the frustration, the anger, what they're going through, all of those, you're committing to that. It's gonna be a community. They would have known, we're not gonna do this alone. We're in this thing together. And so when they responded, when they took that invitation to community, they would have known, hey, we're gonna be around others. We don't exactly know who else Jesus is gonna call. That's why in scripture, you see Jesus teaching and what are the disciples doing? They're off to the side. They're talking to each other. Hey, what does he mean by that? Like, what is the yeast of the Pharisees? This isn't a baking class, Jesus. What are you talking? And they're talking about it with each other. They're arguing scripture, right? Who's gonna be the greatest? What does this look like? What does it mean to be the servant? Like all of these things, they're talking for three years over and over. They're wrestling with it. What does Jesus mean? Why is he saying eat his flesh and drink his blood? Is this some weird cult? What's going on? What does he mean by this? They're asking each other those questions because you weren't a disciple by yourself. You didn't do this thing alone. You did this in community. And so for three years, if you read through the Gospels over and over again, 
They're wrestling with these ideas of what, how do you live this out? What does this mean? This is why we struggle in our Christian faith so many times. Because there are some of you that you sneak in a little bit late after the music has started and the lights are down. And then as soon as Aaron starts to pray his prayer, I'll grab my stuff. I'll get to the kids' room first. I'll check out my kids and I'm out the door before I have to talk to anyone. And that's not how you were meant to live your Christian faith. You want to know why you struggle? You want to know why it feels like I'm banging my head up against the wall and week after week, I'm trying to figure out how come I'm not gaining traction? How come I'm not going further? It's because you're trying to do it alone and you were never meant to do that. When you respond to the call of Christ, follow me, all of a sudden you take all of these people with you. Look around. This is who he's called you to be a part of. This is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. This is what he says is you're my body. You're meant to be there for each other. You're meant to help each other out. You were never called to do this alone. And if you try, it's a struggle. It's a fail. It's so difficult because you weren't called to do this in isolation. This is a community thing. Follow me. Those guys knew we're going to sleep by a campfire together. We're going to eat at a campfire everywhere that Jesus, we're going there. We're in this thing together. We're not leaving each other. This is a community effort. Discipleship was an invitation into community. You're called to each other. You need one another to follow Jesus means you're in this together with his body, with other believers doing this, wrestling with this thing together. That's the call of Christ over our lives. Follow me. They would have known, hey, other people are a part of this. But not only is this an invitation to be in community with others, it's an invitation to be community in community with that spiritual leader, with the rabbi, with Jesus. That means everywhere that Jesus goes. That means he goes into the bathroom, you're his disciple, you go into the bathroom, okay? He sleeps by the campfire, you sleep by the, he goes in the house, you go in the house. You go everywhere that your rabbi goes. That invitation, follow me, meant that for the next few years of your life, you were not leaving his side if you could help it. You were next to him every moment that you could get with him. You were by him. Discipleship is an invitation into community with that spiritual leader, with Jesus himself. When he says, follow me, they would have understood what that meant. Jesus, I'm not leaving your side if I can help it. Everywhere that you let me be, God, I am going to be there with you. I, I laugh at this because um, we have some teenagers in our home, and they are always connecting with other people. So the other, um, I think it was the other evening, we've rearranged some rooms in our house, and I walked upstairs to where Micah's room is now, and he's moving some furniture around, and we start talking. And he's like, I'm trying to get this TV. Can the bookshelf go here? And we're moving stuff, and we're just having this conversation. And about three minutes into it, I hear all of a sudden, hey, Dad. And I look around and no one else is in the room. No other kids are upstairs. And I walk over where the voice came from and Micah's phone is on his window seal and it's Alexis, his girlfriend. And I'm like, hey, Alexis, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, we're just talking and hanging out. And I'm like, this has been on the whole time. Thankfully, I didn't say anything awkward or weird, okay? I didn't know you were a part of this conversation. I didn't know you were here on this, but they do that all the time. They don't even have to talk to each other. The speaker phone's on, they're staying connected. And that's what follow me means. Jesus is saying, can you leave your speakerphone on? You're at work. Students, you're at school. 
Stop disconnecting from me. I want to be with you. I want to go everywhere that you go. I'm in this thing with you. We're not disconnecting. Follow means mean we're in community together. We're going to go everywhere together. I want to be by you. Jesus is saying that. It's an invitation into relationship. That's what Jesus is saying. So in the early context of this, if you were a disciple, if you were following Jesus during those early years, and you would go into a town where people knew you, and they would ask you, wait, you're a disciple, you're following him. They would speak a blessing or a wish. And it was this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Sounds like a weird thing to say to someone, right? May you be covered. But what it meant is you're walking down these dusty roads and may you get so close to the person who's leading you. May you follow so closely that where they're walking, and this is kind of metaphorical, but may it cover you. May it coat over your life. And church, that's my prayer for you. May you get so close to Jesus that his salvation, that his grace, that his kingdom, that his, may you walk so near him that everything about him begins to cover over your life. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you answer that calling to follow him so closely that his life begins to cover your life and you're coated in everything that he's walking in. That's my prayer. See, discipleship, it's an invitation into community with each other and with Jesus, we're called to be close to one another. And so we're gonna practice that for a moment here this morning. We're gonna take that first step. If you snuck in late, hoping you'd miss this, we tricked you, okay? Because we're gonna do connect time right here, okay? So in a moment, you're gonna stand up and this is a body once again. Remember, we love each other. We're called to do this thing together. You're gonna step out of your seat. I can see you, so don't try to trick me, okay? Get out of your seat. Go introduce yourself. Say your name to someone that you don't know yet and something about yourself. It could be your favorite movie, your favorite food, a hobby that you like, something that you enjoy doing, okay? But we're gonna take this first step of community. This isn't all of it, but just the first step this morning. So go ahead and stand up this morning. Let's do this. Get out of your seat. Look around, find someone that you don't know, your name and something interesting about yourself. Okay, I want you to start to move back to your seats if you can. Start to head back. Okay, you can finish this in a little bit. Start to go back to your seats. I love these moments and I hate them because once I get you talking, it's so hard to get you back, okay? But, but we've got a few more things that we want to look at with those two words, follow me. Hopefully you got to meet someone and find something. We're called to be in community. Discipleship is an invitation to community. When he said, follow me, it meant that you weren't going to do this alone and that you were being called into a relationship with God. But also follow me. Discipleship is an invitation to engage God's word. 
It's an invitation to engage God's word. Let me explain what I mean. In that small um, city that you saw there, Bethsaida, there was a synagogue. That was the church or the temple of that time. It looked a little something like this. This is kind of the outline or, or what they've drawn from some of the archaeological digs there that they have. You can see this is the synagogue. The synagogue is in the center of town. And it's specifically for this reason. What you're holding in your hand, that Bible, it didn't exist at that point. And there was no smartphone to take out and Google Matthew chapter 4, okay? If you wanted to get to God's word, this is where you had to go. This is where you went to engage with scripture, okay? This is where you went to get to God's word. So I think we have a second, kind of the inside of the synagogue. This is somewhat what it looked like. There were chairs um, that were probably made out of stone or something that were like this. And then the front of it, you see two things here. You may not be able to make them out, but on one side is what was known as Moses' seat. Okay, that was where they would read scripture. Someone would sit down and they would read or they would engage with scripture. On the other side here that you see, there's kind of a curtain and that's where the scrolls were kept. So in the synagogue up front, there were two parts. There were the seat where the scriptures were read. There was a seat or there was the curtain where the scriptures were kept. Kind of that curtain there, that was the scroll, okay? I don't know if you've ever imagined this before, but this is what a Sunday morning, or I guess a Saturday morning, because that was their Sabbath. This is what it looked like for them as the rabbi, maybe a visiting teacher or a spiritual leader with his disciples would come in and they were responsible for reading God's word. They would pull back that curtain that you see there and they would reach in and they would grab out one of the scrolls. And then this is what they would do. They would start to dance. Have you ever pictured Jesus dancing before? I don't know what kind of dancer he is, okay? But he danced. According to a lot of the rabbinical writings, the rabbi, he would lead this celebration. And this is what it was like. Not just sitting there, ah, oh, we got to listen to 30 minutes of talking again this week. I hope I make it through. It wasn't like, okay, what, what are they going to say this time? I hope they tell some funny stories so I can laugh. No, they were sitting on their edge of their seats. Wait, God's about to speak to us. This is the God of creation. And in this moment, we get to together corporately, we get to hear the words of God and what it is that he wants to say to us. And so they're on the edge of their, their celebration breaks out. They're rejoicing. They're laughing because God is going to show up there and they get to hear the words of God. There was this excitement and it wasn't only the rabbi, the disciples, they're joining in in the dance. Okay, they're doing this together and they're leading the people of God and celebrating because God's word is coming out and they're going to hear scripture once again, God's going to speak to them. And so there's this excitement to be a disciple meant that you carried that with you. The word of God was not just something on the outside. It was in your heart. And there was an expectancy of God. This is so amazing. This is what I look for. This is what I long for. And so in settings like this, whenever they would pull out um, the scroll, they would dance. I thought about doing kind of a dance party, but I decided against that. Okay mainly because I'm not that great of a dancer. So let me take you somewhere else that they went, okay? And I'm gonna need some help with this. So on the front row here of every section, there's some honey. It's a little bear honey, okay? And I want you to take just a tiny bit. You're gonna dab it on your finger so you guys can do this. Don't put it up to your mouth, okay? No one wants that. Just a tiny, tiny bit. Don't get it on the carpet or on the seats or anything. You just need a little bit. Parents, you can help your kids with this if they're there. So take it and then pass it around, okay? So just a tiny little sliver. Once again, you have to wait a second for it to squeeze out there, okay? And you just need a little bit. Don't let it fall, okay? So this is what they would do is they would do this and we're passing this around so it's gonna make its way back to you. You may have to get out of your seats and hand it back to someone. But everyone that can, I want you to get... Um, one of this. So that's what they would do is they would pull out the scroll. 
They would pass around honey, just like we're doing here this morning. It's going to take a minute to get to you. And then they would read this scripture, Psalms chapter 119, 103. And it says this, the writer's talking about God's word. And he says, how sweet are your words to my taste. So if you have that or whenever you get that, just take that and go ahead and you can lick your finger. Hopefully you washed your hands this morning, okay? Just take, and, and he says this, how sweet are your words to my taste. God, your words, they're a delight to me. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalms 119, 103, it, it's getting back there, okay? It's making its way back, it's gonna get. So just take that and that's what they would do is that Psalm was being read, they would take it and they would place it on the tip of their tongues, and then they would just reflect on that. Now, if you've ever tasted honey, it has a weird flavor to us, right? Like, it's a little different, and you may think, that's not as good as chocolate, okay? How does it taste as sweet as chocolate, or candy, or ice cream, or cakes? But you have to imagine, they didn't have any of that. There's not like refined sugar, there's not Splenda, or any of that stuff back then, okay? The sweetest thing that they knew was honey. And so for young children, or even in settings like this, as the scroll is being passed, they're taking the honey, and they're dipping it on their tongue, and they're remembering, God, you're the sweetest thing that I've ever tasted. God, your words, it's what I crave, it's what I long for. If I have a sweet tooth, God, I am wanting more and more of your word, God. I never want to give it up, Lord. It's what I desire. It's what I long. God, this is, this is where my heart is going, just to hear more of your words, just to meditate more on what it is that you're saying, God. It is so sweet to my taste, God. It's what I want. This is what he's saying to them. And this is what the disciples would have been engaged in. So just as I mentioned, God's word is a key part of their life. And you knew to be a follower, to be a disciple of a rabbi, of a spiritual leader, it meant that you were going to engage with God's word, that you were going to talk about this, that it was going to live inside of you, that there would be moments whenever you would read the scroll, but really it was reading your life. And church, that's what I want for you is as you follow after Jesus, that there are moments where you open up the Bible and you feel like you're reading it, but it's reading you. And that's why we say that declaration, scripture shapes our life. It should be sweet to us like honey that we're longing for and that we're saying, God, I want more of your word. God, I want to talk about it. I want to know more of you. God, I want to understand what it is that you're saying to me. I come into this room with an expectancy that as we open up scripture and we hear from you, God, you're shaping me and you're forming me and you're changing me. This is not a once a week activity. You guys, they only had access to those scrolls there in the curtain. You have access to it 24-7. They came expecting. We, every time we open up the scriptures, we should come expecting, God, you're gonna speak to us. We wanna hear your voice, God. We wanna know what it is that you're saying. Follow me. Discipleship was an invitation to engage in God's word. Let me give you this last one right here. Discipleship is a statement of faith. When Jesus said that, follow me, that was a statement of faith. Now, it was not a statement of faith of, Peter and Andrew, James, John, of their trust in Jesus, it was actually a statement of faith of his trust in them. Let me show you why. We have one more um, picture up here, and this is actually, um, I think, in the community there of Bethsaida, where um, these guys are from that we just read about there, Peter and Andrew, James, and John. They would have been here. And this is the synagogue. It, it's torn down now, but these are some of the, the archaeological digs that are there. And where you see these people, this is the school. Every synagogue in that nation, they had a school attached to the side of it. And this is what would happen. As a young person, you would go to this school. 
And once again, they would walk inside, they'd pull out the scrolls and they would open them up. You'd get honey dipped on um, your finger and you'd put it on your tongue and they would start to teach you some. So from about the age, maybe of six to eight years old, all the way to 12, you would study the first five books of the Bible, the law. You would know them over and over. You would memorize sections of them. And whenever you reach about 10 or 12 years old, um, sometimes the girls may, may stop a little bit earlier, but, but around that age, the rabbi, the teacher, maybe if a disciple was leading the teaching during that season, they would look at you and they would say, you love God's word. God's word is gonna be a part of your life. It's gonna go with you. But you should go and learn your family trade now. That was the kind way of saying you're smart, you're just not smart enough, okay? So we want you to go back home, go to your mom, go to your dad now, and you're going to start to learn how to do just a regular family trade. Whatever your family does, we bless you, go learn your family trade. But not everyone did that. See, the top of the top, the best in the class, kind of the cream of the crop there, they would go on. And they would not only study the Torah, but then they would go into the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, those kinds of books. They would go through the histories, the kings, um, all of those books. And the prophets, if they had access to those, they would start to read some of the prophets. They would begin to study those. They would memorize larger sections of scripture. And sometimes you would even try to recite them backwards. You knew God's word literally forward and backwards. You would learn as much as you can. But after a few years of doing that, the rabbi, once again, he may come to you and he may say, hey, God's word, you love God's word. God's word is gonna go with you but we bless you to go learn your family trade. Once again, you're smart, just not smart enough. But if you were smart enough, you at that point would go and find a rabbi. And this was the young person and you would approach the rabbi. You would go up to him and you would say, hey, I've studied your teachings. I've studied God's word. I want to follow you. Can I follow you? And if the rabbi, he would quiz you. What's the middle of the commandments? Why is it placed there? How does it link the other four um, or the other kind of commandments around them before and after that middle commandment? What is Genesis chapter six? And why does God tell us that story at that? You would have to, I mean, it was like a, an intense quiz, kind of like to get into college. He would ask you, okay, start reciting Leviticus 16 backwards. And you'd have to try to do that. And if you were good enough, if he looked at you and he thought, you know what, after I'm gone, you can do this then he would speak those words, follow me. That meant you were his disciples. But that's not the way Matthew tells the story, is it? That's not what happens. See, where are Peter and Andrew, where are James and John when Jesus comes to them? They're doing their father's trade. They're in the family business. So that means at some point, someone looked at them and said, you love God's word. God's word is gonna be a part of your life, but you're not really good enough. Why don't you go and learn the family trade? And they're in this triangle of people that love God, that want to do everything. They want their livelihood to surround, surround him and, and to be centered around him. But at some point, someone looked and said, yeah, you're just not quite going to make it. Why don't you go and learn your family trade? And what does Jesus do? They don't come to him. He goes to them and he looks at them and you and I read, follow me, but that's not what they heard. They heard, I believe in you. I believe in you. And someone else at some point looked at your life and they said, you're not gonna make it and you don't have enough. 
And why don't you just go do something else because the God thing's not going to work out? And Jesus steps in the middle of the scene of our life when we're doing other stuff. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, no, I believe in you. I believe that you can do this. I believe that you can live this thing out. I believe that after I'm gone, you can actually take my teachings and you can change the world. That 12 teenage boys could turn the world upside down. And so he looks at them when other people had passed him over and he says, follow me. But what they heard is, I believe in you. This was a statement of faith. Jesus is saying, you can do this. You can do this. You can go take my teachings and you can live them out. That's why when you understand what's going on, all of a sudden the verse in John chapter 15, verse 16, it sounds totally different. When Jesus tells the disciples, hold hold on a minute. You didn't choose me. You didn't make the cut all the way through. And eventually you came to me as a rabbi and said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I chose you to go and bear fruit. And this is fruit that will remain and that will last. Jesus said, don't get it mixed up. Someone had passed you by and I came to you and he said, I see worth and I see value and I see my kingdom that can be built inside of you. I'm telling you, you can do this. I believe you. And you guys, sometimes we forget that. And there's this powerful illustration. If you've ever read any of the books called The Chronicles of Narnia, written by a Christian author, C.S. Lewis, he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You may remember the movie that came out a few years ago. In one of the books, that towards the end of the series, it's called The Silver Chair, there are these two children. And they're trying to get to Aslan, which represents Jesus, this great lion in this allegory. He represents Christ. And so they start to call out to him, Aslan, Aslan. Let us into your magical kingdom. Let us come to you. And all of a sudden they appear there in front of the lion. And they begin to speak to him. And he says, I've been waiting for you. I've been looking forward to this day. I've been wanting to talk with you. And they look at him and they're like, Aslan, you're confused. You didn't call to us. We called to you. And the lion chuckles and he says, my children, you would have never known to speak my name unless I had first called out your name. And you guys, we can sit in these seats long enough that we forget that. You didn't come to church just because of a crisis. You didn't get here because you thought my kids are little and I want them to grow up around God. That's not why you're in this room. You're here because Jesus, the great rabbi, looked at you at some point and he spoke your name before you ever spoke his. And he said, I believe in you. I see something inside of you. I'm calling you, come and follow me. And even though others have passed you up, I want you to be a part of my kingdom. You're good enough. That's what is happening here. See, all of a sudden, those two simple words, follow me, they mean so much more when we start to understand what's going on here in Scripture. When you hear follow me, it means I'm doing this in a community and I'm drawing close to Jesus. It means that I love the Word of God. It's not a spiritual habit that I just have to do. No, I'm in love with it. I want to hear more of what God wants to say in my life. And it actually means that Jesus believes in me that he believes in you, that he's looking at you saying, you can do this.